0: Bible there, Genesis chapter 34. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read just down to verse 7 of this chapter, Genesis chapter 34. As I was preparing this message, my intent was to take you all the way through the chapter, but I found there was so much in the first few verses that we should stay here a little while before moving into the remainder of the text. So, Genesis chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. Where we read, and Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. And his soul cleave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, Give me this damsel to wife. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his daughter. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. And Hamor the father of Shechem went out unto Jacob to commune with him. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved, and they were very wroth. Because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. And we trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Genesis chapter 34 is an interesting uh, chapter. It's a story of folly. It's a story of lust. It's a story of love. It's a story of uh, revenge. It's a chapter that is marred by the absence of God and by the presence of sin. Not once in this entire chapter will you find that God has been mentioned Uh, Nor indeed do we find any offering of prayer nor any such a thing. Now you may remember that Jacob was en route to Bethel at the command of God. And along the way he stopped about 20 miles short and he settled down in just outside the town of Shechem. And there he remained for about 10 years. The reason he stopped there was the same reason that Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom. It was a commercial decision. It was a town that offered him a commercial outlet. And so he knew that if he was to stay there, he could increase his goods, he could increase his wealth, he could do business in the town. And so his decision was purely a financial one, not a spiritual one. He should have continued on until he'd come back to Bethel. But like Lot, he was going to sacrifice his daughter to the world. As one writer put it, Shechem was good for Jacob's sheep, but it was bad for his little lamb. Dinah was, as far as we know, his only daughter. She lived in a home surrounded entirely by men. She was about six years old when they arrived in Shechem. She's about 16 years of age by the time they leave Shechem. Uh, And she spent her entire life uh, in this male-dominated environment. Not only was she living in a home that was heavy with men, but she was living in a dysfunctional family. Remember, there were four wives and four mothers with different children in that home one husband and so we read in the opening verse of our text that she is Dinah the daughter of Leah and so as she grew up she would have watched her mother she would have observed her mother's actions and reactions she would have seen her mother competing for Jacob's love but she also would have observed how her mother and she were second best to Rachel and to Joseph. Remember how when Jacob was coming back into the land and how he was going to approach Esau and feared for his life that he put the family in a particular order and of course uh, uh, with respect to uh, Leah and her children they were put ahead uh, of Rachel and Joseph and so that if there was a slaughter uh, Rachel would have been protected more so than Leah and her children and certainly all of these things would have made an impression upon a young woman growing up. You see, here was the problem in their house. Leah and indeed Dinah were always second best. And that hurts a little girl. We have but one granddaughter, our Addison. And, uh, you know, she's the only granddaughter among five, uh, among six grandchildren. There's five boys and the one granddaughter, And she relishes that position because I've always told her she's her her granddad's wee princess. And so uh, the last time one of our daughters got pregnant and she announced it at a family gathering that she was going to have a baby, Alison looked across at me and she said, Granddad, what are we going to do if it's a girl? (laughs) And I said, well, honey, don't you worry about it because you'll always be the first girl. You'll always be granddad's princess. And she just smiled and that was her happy and she went back to her seat. (laughs) You see, we girls want to be wanted. They want to be loved. They want to be loved by their fathers. They want to be loved by their grandfathers. And unfortunately for Dinah... There was a lack. There was there was a, a, a lesser love afforded her than was afforded Joseph and perhaps some of the other uh, children. And so she felt second best. Not only that, she had observed her from her mother that you know if you want to get a man, there's a way to get a man, and she decided to get a man, and the way she decided to get the man was not God's way. Remember, in chapter thirty, we saw how Leah, in desperation. Uh, Bought a night in bed with Jacob uh, for the price of some mandrakes. We read there, and this is what the scripture says. And Jacob came out into the field in the evening, came out of the field in the evening, and Leah, notice the wording, went out to meet him and said, Thou must come in unto me, for surely I have hired thee with my son's mandrakes. And he lay with her that night. What a lesson that was in parenthood. All the time, you see. The little eyes were watching. All the time this little girl was looking on and observing how her mother behaved around her father. Leah went out that night to catch her man. And in chapter 34, just as we read earlier that Leah went out to meet him, meet Jacob, we read, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out. Unto the daughters of the land. Now, at first glance, that seems like a rather innocuous statement. She went out onto the daughters of the land. I mean, like all teenage girls, we could say she is seeking the company of other girls of her age, and that's perfectly normal. There's nothing necessarily wrong in that. But sometimes the problem is not the company that you keep, but the company that keeps you. And I think that's what you'll find took place here in the life of this young teenage girl, uh, Dinah. You know, Paul puts it this way: "Be not deceived; evil communications corrupts good manners." Now, that's a rather old English way of saying that the good apple always, or the bad apple always ruts the good. That you that you're always influenced by the company that you keep. And uh, and that's exactly what happened with Dinah. She fell into the wrong crowd, and life took a downturn for her. And I want you to notice in the verse, verses 1 to 3, there was an act of fornication. It says, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defied her. And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. Now notice, Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now we have to have a degree of sympathy for this young lady. I mean, as I say, she had been raised in a house full of boys. She craved, no doubt, feminine company. She had spent many days of her life living in a tent outside of some town or other, surrounded by all of these uh, brothers. Naturally, she sought companionship with, and friendship. She wanted to go where the fun was. She was attracted to the bright lights of uh, Shechem and, and to the city streets. And in some ways, she's rather like the the prodigal son in that respect. You know, it seems that she had fallen in with some Shechemite girls, that she had made friends with some of the children in the neighborhood. And uh, that's a good thing on the one hand, but it raises its own problems uh, on the other hand. For these girls were Canaanite girls, and they lived according to Canaanite standards. You know, their ways were not the Lord's ways. Their ways were the ways of this world. And uh, you Hebrew scholars uh, give us a very revealing insight into what this verse is teaching. For they say that when it says that she went out to the daughters of the land, it quite literally means she went out to see how they dressed and to see how they acted. She went out to see how they dressed and to see how they acted. She wanted to belong. She wanted to be one of those girls. She wants to look like them and act like them and talk like them. You know, that's normal teenage behavior. I hate to tell you this. If you've got children in primary school right now, dad, who think that you're the apple, that they're the apple of your eye and every, they hang on every word of yours. There's coming a day when they're going to find a group of friends and what their friends say will have greater influence than what you say. And so it's so important that young people are directed around, that they make the right choices, that they get into the company of godly friends and, and godly young people who will help them to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus and not turn their heads toward the things of this world. You see, there's nothing wrong with a teenager excuse me, wanting to belong. There's nothing wrong with her even wanting to be like other girls in some respects. But the problem arises when the role models are modeling worldly behavior. Now, what is worldliness? Well, worldliness is one of those things It's hard to define, but it's easy to detect. You see, worldliness is any action or attitude that deadens us to the things of God's word. It brings down our guard against, uh, against holy standards. It, it lowers our standards. It causes us to abandon that which we know to be right. That's worldliness. You know, you look at some people in church sometimes, and of course I appreciate that I get this view. This is a pastor's eye view, Okay? You only have to look at me and I have to look at all of you. And you look out sometimes in a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. And you see some people and they're professing believers. And they come in and they look like they've been sucking lemons all day. Man, goodness, their faces are long. Their spirit is sour. Their body language is not open. You know, you, you get the sense that they don't want to necessarily be here. And then you maybe think, well, that's just the way they are. You know, people are different. Some people are very open and gregarious. And other people perhaps are, are, are a little more retiring and, and shy perhaps. But then you look at their social media page. And you see an entirely different picture. You don't see now that sorry face. You don't see now that sour spirit. Now you see somebody who's having the time of their life, grinning from ear to ear, hanging around with the world and the ungodly. And you say, well, well what, why is that? Because they're worldlings. That's why it is. And the world is where they belong. You see, here's the thing. Before I was a Christian, I loved the world. I was happiest in the world. But when I got saved, something took place in my heart, and I fell in love with the church, and I'm happiest in the church. Before I was saved, well, I was like everybody else, as respect to church goes. You went for weddings or you went for funerals, and if you were unfortunate enough, you might have been wrangled into going to your christening. But that changed when I came to know the Lord Jesus. And it did for many of you. But there's some of you here perhaps and you're, you know, you're much happier out with your friends, uh, climbing around in the world and, and much more at home with the world than you are with the church. Let me tell you something. That's a worrying, worrying characteristic. And that's where Diana was. Her heart wasn't with Jacob. Her heart wasn't with the Abrahamic covenant. Her heart was out in the world. She was chasing the boys with the other Shechemite girls. And she had learned well from her mother and from her friends how to gain her, their attention. And so she dressed in such a way and acted in such a way so that she would indeed draw the attention of the boys in the neighborhood. You know, that was a problem in the land of Judah during the ministry Of Isaiah. Look in Isaiah chapter 3 for a moment. You see sometimes we think. Well God doesn't care how we dress. A number of times people have quoted to me. Man looks in the outward appearance. But God looks in the heart. As though somehow God is not concerned. With what we put on our bodies. And how we present ourselves in this world. Let me tell you something. When you use that verse that way. You're resting it out of its context. And you're saying something. That God never intended that verse to say. You better be careful when you mess with God's word in that way. Look at Isaiah chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, Moreover the Lord saith, Because the daughters of Zion, Now speaking of the women of Judah, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, And walk with stretched forth necks, and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, and making a tinkling with their feet. Can you see it? Can you see these women with their stretched out necks? They're walking a certain way. Walking and mincing as they go. They're drawing attention to themselves. So they're going down the catwalk. Do you ever see those models walking down the catwalk? Con- if you saw them walking down the street like that, you'd say, that girl's sick. Dear Helper, something's wrong with the bones in our body. Look at the way she walks. And that's what was going on. These girls, their necks were out. They were all wearing a certain dress in a certain way, walking a certain way. They were mincing with their feet. That's what the Bible says. And, and if you carry on down the text, you get a little bit more information. The Lord's going to judge them for this. The Lord will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion. The Lord will discover their secret parts. In that day the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon. Those are fashion accessories of the day. The chains and the bracelets and the mufflers, the bonnets and the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, the rings and the nose jewels. The changeable suits of apparel, and the mantles, and the wimples, and the crisping pins, the glasses, and the fine linen, and the hoods, and the veils. And it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, instead of perfume, there will be stink. Instead of a girdle, a rent. Instead of well set hair, baldness. Instead of a stomach or a girdle, a girding of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. God's well, going to judge them for it. Can I say to you, as Christian women that you must ever be mindful to dress and this is not a popular message in the pulpit today but you must ever be mindful to dress in a way that is modest Now, I'm not saying you can't dress nicely or you can't dress in a fashionable or modern way but I'm saying that you should not dress in such a way that you purposefully draw male attention to yourself. I was in a church one time as a preacher, as a visiting preacher. I'm sitting on the platform as visiting preachers do. Gentlemen's leading the services. We're through the first song, I think. We're through the prayer and into the second song. The door opens and this woman comes in. And you talk about mincing your feet. That's how she came in. She used the church aisle like it was a catwalk, and she comes walking down the church aisle, middle of the service, mini skirt on. Must have been an offcut. There was there was so little material on it. Comes walking down the church aisle, mini skirt on. Now I'm not talking about a teenager here. I'm talking about a grown woman. And it's all look at me, look at me, coming down the church. And I thought to myself, look at the state of that. Look at the state of that. Turns out she was the elder's wife. Could not believe it. Could not believe it. You see, here's the thing. You know, that elder would have been very exercised about the head covering and well and good. But what about the thigh covering? What about some modesty? What about dressing like a Christian? What about dressing in a way that pleases the Lord and not in a way that turns heads? You see, you have to understand that men are visually aroused and you ought to dress in a way that helps your brother maintain his purity. Now I can hear the liberals among us crying out, well you shouldn't be shaming women because of the way they dress. That's the fault of the men. It's not our fault if the men think that way. By the way, if you're thinking those thoughts, that's because you've been infected by worldliness. And I'm not excusing the men in this respect. I'm not saying that a man shouldn't turn his eyes away. A man has a duty to keep his mind pure. Job said, I've made a covenant with mine eyes. Why should I then think upon a meal?" But at the same time, a Christian woman has a duty to her brother in Christ by dressing in a way that is not in any sense provocative. Sort of liken it to a man who goes up to an ATM machine, he withdraws 300 pounds from the machine. And he stands on the street. And he waves the three hundred pounds above his head, and he goes, "I can go and get that new suit now. I've got my three hundred pounds. I can get the new suit." And a robber comes along and snatches the money out of his hand. Well, who's at fault? Well, of course, the robbers at fault, isn't he? The thief is at fault. No one is. No one is suggesting that the that the that the thief is somehow innocent. But the man was a fool for waving his money, was he not? And so it is, ladies, with respect to our dress. We ought to dress in such a way that does not draw attention to us from the meals in the congregation or in the in society as a whole. This is Christian Womanhood 101. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 9. Hall writes in like manner also that women adorn themselves notice in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing goodness with good works. He says, Let your clothing Reflect your profession. Look in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, in verse 5. He says, Dress in a way that, that says you're a Christian, that speaks volumes about your walk with the Lord. Notice here we're, we're reading of those who are, those women who are to teach a younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. Verse 5 To be discreet, chaste is the next word. And the word "discreet" means curbing one's desires and impulses. Chaste means pure from, uh, pure from carnality. It means modest. He says he says that the women should be taught. The younger women should be taught uh, to uh, to be modest. They should be taught to dress in a way that does not arouse desire or impulses. They should be chaste. Look in First Peter. You want to see how a woman ought to dress? Look in First Peter. Chapter 2. I oh, know you might not like this message this morning, but you know that's not my problem. I just preach the word of God. 1 Peter chapter I said chapter 2, but I'm not sure that's right. I said chapter 3. Likewise, excuse me, chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning. Notice, not not don't be concerned about what's on the outside so much. Who's adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting of the hair, and of wearing of gold, and of putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. And then Sarah is given as an example of that. But notice the emphasis of the Christian woman should not be what's on the outside. It should be upon what's on the inside. To be taking care of her spirit and her heart, and walking before the Lord in such a way as to as to indeed be a woman who, who in the sight of God is of great price. In her right look. Well, we can well imagine how Dinah dressed. If you go back to chapter thirty four of Genesis, she dressed like the other or like the Shechemite girls dressed. And she flirted with the Shechemite boys, no doubt. And as she did so, she drew the attention of this man, Shechem, a prince of the town. A fine young man by the world standards. If you read the text, you'll see that he was an honorable young man in many respects. And no doubt, he found this foreign girl very attractive. You know, it's kind of interesting. I, I thought about that when I was a young man. You know, when you're a young man, you're, you're just you're changing from childhood to adulthood and your hormones are raging. And there was a wee girl who came over to our area from the United States of America. I always remember her. I'll remember her to my, I her to my day, day She was a knockout. Absolute knockout. And uh, all the boys fell for her. Because not only was she very attractive, but she was, she was American, which was different. And honestly... I remember sitting on the she was visiting a, a neighbour of mine she was a cousin of a neighbour of mine and, and all us boys sat on the wall of the house waiting for her to come out we all wanted to go out with this girl and I can imagine this is how it was when Dinah came into town she was, she was different from the Shechemite girls she maybe had a different accent maybe a different skin complexion, certainly a different outlook and Shechem found her interesting. He was attracted to her. Well, Shechem, after whom the city is named, becomes besotted with Dinah. Notice when it says in verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her, and he defiled her. In fact, as you read down the text, you'll find that he loved her. At least he liked what he saw. What difference is there between Shekin's outlook, between Shekin's behaviour, than the modern worldly crowd's behaviour? Do you think the boys in the street, beyond this church's walls, think any differently or behave any differently than Shekin of old? What difference is there between his way of doing things and the way of the modern world's doing things? I'll tell you what difference there is. There's no difference. You know, I was driving along the road the other day, listening, I was listening to Radio Ulster, and uh, the next next song was Ed Sheeran. Now, I I know who Ed Sheeran is, but I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about his music. I know everybody talks about him as being a great singer-songwriter. And so I thought, well, I'll listen to this boy, Ed Sheeran. Have a listen to this song. And you know, the song's called Shape of You. And you talk about a lewd and worldly song. And there are many Christians, maybe some of you here, who extol. This kind, of Christ, this kind of character and who listened to this kind of music. Are you actually listening to the words? Listen to what he sang. I couldn't believe it when I was listening to it. And I've heard Christian people speak highly of Ed Sheeran. And this is what the song said. I'm in love with the shape of you. We push and pull like a magnet do. Although my heart is falling too. I'm in, I'm in love with your body. With your body. Well, that's where Shechem was. He was in love with this young woman, but he was in love with her body. And in this culture, unattached women who uh, who show up are considered to be fair game to men. In fact, they still are in that culture. When Hazel and I were in Egypt. The very first day, the tour guide gathers everybody in from the party and, and he counsels the women. And he says, now, he says, I want you to know this is, the, this is not the Western society. This is not London or Birmingham or Manchester. He says, and when you go into town, he says, you ought not to go in wearing a swimsuit. and You ought not to go in wearing little shorts. He says, because if you do, the men are going to hassle you endlessly. And you know, when you went into that town, and by the way, that town, Hargadah, in Egypt's 90% men. 90% of the population in that town is men. When you went into that town, you could hear the men shouting lewd things. Now, they were speaking in Arabic, but listen, you didn't have to speak in Arabic to understand what was being said. They were shouting unseemly things at the women as they passed by. And that's that culture. It's still that culture. Now, I, I, I want to put to bear this notion that that people have about this particular passage of scripture: the idea that Shechem raped Dinah. If you're reading a modern version of your Bible, it might even say in the text, "When Shechem saw her, he took her and raped her." That's what it says in the NIV. He took her and raped her. Even in some some copies of the authorized version, you might find a title put in by the publisher at the heading of this chapter which says, The Rape of Dinah. There's no suggestion here that Shechem raped Dinah. He seduced her for sure, but he did not assault her. And I can give you at least nine reasons why. I would say to you this is not a rape, and why that word should not be applied to this passage. First of all, in ancient Hebrew, there's no equivalent word for the word rape, and so there's no linguistic reason or justification to use it in translation. That's a technical issue, but here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that, they, that he took her. Now people say, well, he took her, and then he must have forced her. No, it doesn't say he forced her. It says he took her. It, with respect to Ammon and Tamar, concerning David's uh, son and his stepsister Tamar, it says he forced her. Now that's a rape. In the case of the Ephraimite concubine in Judges 19, who was gang raped, again, she's forced. Well, you say, but well, wait a minute, Pastor. It says that Shechem took her and lay with her. Look, it says the same thing about Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah. He didn't rape Rebekah. He lay with Rebekah. She became his wife. And this was the problem in this text. Shechem is treating her almost as though she was his wife. As though they were married when they were not. And I say to you young people, until there's a ring on your finger, you're not married and you shouldn't act like you are married. Simple. Simple as that. You know, I was, when Hazel and I were dealing, we were out in a church outing one day. Young people went somewhere, Ross Trevor Forest Park or somewhere. And they were playing football. I was playing football all afternoon with the lads in church. Worn out, on the way back, sitting beside her on the minibus. I just leaned in on her. the pastor looks in the mirror of the bus and he sees me. And he says, David, if you and Hazel were married, that would make a lovely picture. He says, but since you're not set up. (laughs) Well, he was right. He was right. You see... Here's this man, Shechem, and he, and he hasn't raped her. You know, he, there's no indication that he forced her. In fact, the Bible says he loved her, and he wanted to marry her at any cost. This is not how a rapist behaves. In the case of Ammon and Tamar, it says that Ammon hated Tamar. Rape is an act of hatred. It's never an act of love. Not only that, but according to verse 12, he was willing to pay whatever dowry they set upon her. He was willing to pay whatever her father asked to marry her. That's not the actions of a rapist. Verse 19 describes him as being more honorable than the other men in his time. I don't think the Bible would use the term honorable about him if he was a rapist. Now remember, his behavior is certainly deplorable from a Christian standpoint, from our particular ethos, but it's completely acceptable in the world. And here's the other thing you'll find as we read down this text. Even though he lay with her, he did not expect retaliation from her brothers. He considered it as being perfectly normal. If he had forced her, then I think he could have legitimately expected some retaliation. So why do, these, why do these other Bible versions, why do they put in the, the word rape? Because it, it somehow lessens the actions of Simeon and Levi later in the text. He was, here's the other thing he's willing to do. He was willing to meet the requirement of circumcision in order to marry her. It doesn't sound to me like someone who is a rapist. And furthermore, if you go down in the text, we'll look at it next week, Lord willing. She had to be dragged out of his home. The brothers had to go in and get her and bring her out of the house. In other words, she decided to live with them. She was checked up with them. Well you know, are going to happen if you're a rapist. The woman isn't going to live with you. She'd be more than happy to see her brothers at the door. She'd be running out the door to meet them. Nowhere does this passage? Suggest that Dinah was a victim. Nowhere is that the case. In fact, she's hardly mentioned at all. Her name appears only five times in the whole passage. Nowhere is she portrayed as a victim. The relationship between Dinah and Shechem was absolutely consensual. Now, I want you to look with me at verses three and four and see what happened. It says that after Shechem and Dinah were intimate. That his soul cleave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. And Shechem spake unto his father Hamor, saying, "Get me this damsel to wife." Do you see how back to front all of this is. You see, first he's intimate with her, then he falls in love with her, and now he wants to marry her and. And later in the passage, verse 7, it says at the end of that verse, which thing ought not to be done. He got it entirely wrong. Back to front. You see, that's not how it's done. It's almost the reverse of God's order. In God's will, a couple meet. They get to know each other. Then they marry. And then they become physically intimate. But the modern world has no such standard. Indeed, the ancient world had no such standard. So that now we have couples getting married with their own children at the wedding. Have you seen that? People getting married and their kids are at the wedding. Their own son. It's a page boy. Their own daughter is a flower girl. In fact, there's a BBC children's show in which that's the very theme of the show. The children are encouraged to marry their parents, to get their parents married, and the children arrange the wedding, and the children decide what the entertainment's going to be and what's going to be eaten at the reception, and and so on and so forth. You see, the whole thing is back to front. And that's where we are as a nation, I'm afraid. We're no different from ancient Canaan, And we all know how God judged the people of Canaan. So Shechem wants Dinah to be his wife. And what Shechem wants, Shechem gets. Because Shechem is the blue-eyed boy of Hamor, just as Joseph is the blue-eyed boy of Jacob. But ever before Hamor gets to speak with Jacob about the matter, notice in verse 5, Jacob already knew. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah his wife daughter. And what did he do? He decided to wait. He decided to wait until his sons came home. It says now his sons were with his cattle in the field and Jacob held his peace until they were come. But notice what happens in verse 7. Ever before they come, the sons of Jacob came out of the field which they, when they heard it. In other words, they heard it out in the field. They didn't need Jacob to tell them what had happened. Friends, people talk. People gossip. Shechem was effectively a prince of that region. He had found his princess, and like all royal love affairs, the press were having a field day with it, and the tongues were waggling. Here's the thing I want you to get this morning, especially if you're a young woman. You can say what you like about living in a progressive society. You can say what you like about living in a modern world. But a girl who lives loose still gets a reputation for living loose. People talk about her. Her peers will talk about her. Adults will talk about her. And all it takes is one mess up to have your reputation totally tarnished. And that's what we find in this wee girl. She messed up one time. But people were talking about her, and her father heard it, and her brothers heard it. You see, here's what George Washington said, a reputation once broken may possibly be repaired, but the world will always keep their eyes on, where, on the spot where the crack was. It's not true? If you mess up big time, you'll drag that mistake with you your whole life long. Oh yeah, you can can turn your life around and you can change things. And maybe you can live to a higher standard later on. But nevertheless, the world is always going to look at where the crack was. Oh aye, that's your woman. Remember what she did? You say, oh pastor, that's that's so unfair. Why is it always the girl and never the boys? You know what? This is just the reality of it. I'm not saying that's right or that's wrong. I'm just telling you that's the reality of it. People will always remember the bad that you do over the good that you do. And some of the stains of sin are very difficult to shake off. Look in Proverbs chapter 10. Here's God's great book of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 10. King Solomon with his pen writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost gives us some counsel with this respect. Chapter 10 and verses 6 and 7. Notice it says, Forsake the foolish and live and go in the way of understanding. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hit thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will uh, love thee. Look in chapter 22 and verse 1. Chapter 22 and verse 1. Sometimes you just get a blot on your life. I love this verse. We have a lady in in Milton many years ago did a cross stitch and gave us this verse in a a framed picture and it hangs up in my office. It says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favour rather than silver and gold. A good name is rather to be chosen than great great riches. I wonder, do you have a good name? A young person, do you have a good name? In your school corridor, do you have a good name? When people speak about you, do they speak about you well? Do they say of you, well, he's a Christian or she's a Christian and they know you're a Christian and that's the stand you take. That's a good reputation. Or do they say, he goes to church on Sunday, but you know what he's like? Or she goes to church, but you know what? She's a bit of a girl. Really? That's your reputation? It's bad news. Ecclesiastes 7, one says, A good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. Poor Dinah got a bad name. In fact, her name is now effectively withdrawn from the story. You'll never hear from her again except one more time toward the end of the book. She disappears from the page of Scripture. She, she gets herself a reputation. How much better it is to do things God's way. What a salutary lesson this is to all of us. Not just to young people or to single people. But what a lesson to parents. What a lesson to parents about the dangers of favoritism. Of making one of your children feel second best. Well, about a, a, a word of warning about letting your children have free reign? Choosing their own friends, doing what they want to do, going where they like, and absolutely no restraint. Let me tell you, that's a parental mistake. You should know who their friends are. You should know where they're going. You should know what they're doing. You should have a set time for them coming home. You should know who's texting them. You should know what they're doing on the internet. Listen, forget this nonsense. Oh, they've got to have privacy. Privacy my eye. Who bought them the phone? You did. Who owns the phone? You do. Your young person says, "Well, oh, that's my business. Just take the phone off and say, well, buy your own phone now. That'll fix it. That'll fix it. You're responsible. You're in charge. It's a word of warning here. There's a warning about those who are virtually absentee fathers. Who are never there. Who aren't around. Who aren't involved. Who are leaving mommy to do all the childbearing. Let me tell you something. Mothers have a lot to do. And they have to take their share in the childbearing. But dad, you have a lot to do also. And you should take a share in the childbearing. Jacob took his hands off Dinah. She was the daughter of Leah. If you're a young person, if you're a single person, then there's a lesson here for you. First of all, there's a warning about the company you keep. Choose your companionship wisely. There's a warning about the attitudes we adopt. Are we, are we living in such a way as, as to be influenced by this world? Or are we separate from the world? For sure, we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world, young people. There's a reminder that God's way is the best way. Doesn't matter what other people say. They might say your views are old fashioned, or they might say, well, it's all relative. It's you know, it doesn't matter if, if everybody else is doing it, you should do it also. Listen to me, young people. Do what God wants you to do. You be what God wants you to be. And you'll save yourself a lifetime of hardy. You'll save yourself from a lifetime of scarring. You see, what, what God has for you is best. Dinah is going to pay dear for this little fling with Shechem. You can read on down the passage if you wish for next week, but you're going to find out it's going to cost her. She's going to be a widow even before she's married. Maybe you're here at the end. You know, there's some things you need to set right in your life. Maybe you're a parent who needs to establish new priorities. Set new boundaries. Maybe you've been putting business or work before your family. Listen, brother, if that's you, if you've been putting business or work before your family, you need to get your home in order. You need to get your priorities right. Because family's first. Family comes before work. Remember, maybe you're a young person who wants to throw caution to the wind, who wants to throw off the restraints of Christian parents and a godly home and live as you please. May the Lord forgive you, young person. You don't know how blessed you are. You don't know how good you have it to be living in a Christian home. I've told you before, and my daughter would tell you when, when, she, was, when she was running riot, and I was making life miserable for her, and she was making life miserable for me. She got up into university, and she was a social worker, trained to be a social worker. She got out on, on um, trips out out to what do we call that? Work experience or whatever. She went out to to uh, see see how social work works on the field. She went to homes in Middlesbrough. She'd see deprivation. She'd see abuse. She called me one night. She says, "Dad, I'm sorry. I didn't realise that what a good home was brought up in." I didn't realize. Maybe that's you this morning. all up in a Christian home, you don't realize what a good home you have. So I'm going, to, I'm going to get out of here. Shame on you. Shame on you. Maybe you need to make it right with your parents. Maybe you have been here and you're guilty of buying into the world's pattern of doing things. You've been influenced by the world. And you've, you've cast aside the cautions and the stands that you once took. Even as an adult, we can do that. Maybe it's time to reappraise our walk with God. I wonder, have you allowed the world to encroach upon your life to such a degree that you've begun to, to think and to act more like your unsafe friends than, than God's people? Time to think again. Time to get right time to walk in renewed fellowship with him don't be a dinah you know we sing dare to be a daniel well let me say this don't dare to be a dinah because it ends up in heartbreak may God bless these thoughts to your hearts this morning